This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Bruce Pascoe and Bill Gamage. Bruce Pascoe is a Ewan, Bonorong and Tasmanian man. He was born in Richmond. Bruce is a writer and farmer. He is the author of many books, including his very well-known work, Dark Emu. In it, Bruce argues that pre-settlement Aboriginal agriculture and engineering was left out of the history books. Bill Gamage is a historian based at the Humanities Research Centre at the ANU. He is the author of several books, including The Biggest Estate on Earth, How Aborigines Made Australia, which explored how Aboriginal people have managed the land to their advantage for millennia, including using fire stick practices. Bill and Bruce joined me to discuss a book they've co-authored called Country, Future Fire, Future Farming. They look at the land care practices of First Nations peoples in relation to farming and fire. Now, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome onto the program two people I admire greatly, and I know many listening do too. Bill Gamage, who is a historian and the author of many books, including The Biggest Estate on Earth, which is a a classic, historical classic for many, and also Bruce Pascoe, who's written a number of books as well. He is a a writer and a farmer and a Ewan man and a Bunurong man from Tasmania, born in Richmond. And Bruce has written a very well-known book to many people listening, Dark Emu. Bill and Bruce have both combined forces to co-author a new book called Country, Future Fire, Future Farming. And it's part of a First Knowledges series, which has been produced by Thames and Hudson. So I welcome both Bill Gamage and Bruce Pascoe today. Hi there, Bill. Good day, Amy. Good to be... I was about to say good to be with you, but people think I'm a politician. So good day, good day. Good day works well. Hi there, Bruce. How are you going? I'm good. I'm good, thanks. How are you? Um, I'm well. That's great. Now, Bruce uh, is a very busy person, as many people know, so he has to head off in a 20 minutes' time. So we're going to start with Bruce, which Bill has agreed to as well. So anyone wondering, that's why I've um, divided the labour in this uh, chat first. So. Bruce, it's so wonderful to hear you writing with such passion and enthusiasm for farming and particularly sharing insights with us, personal insights with us about your farm in East Gippsland. I really wonder if you could take us there, in our minds at least, to your farm and tell us about it, what it looks like, and then we can use that, I hope, as a jumping point into the points you're making in this book about farming. Well, uh, the property is called Yambara, uh, which is black duck and the central spiritual being of Yuan people. But I bought the property because we needed to be able to grow these foods that I talk about in Dark Emu so that Aboriginal people have a foothold in an industry which is going to be massive. But the property, when I bought it, was the cheapest in Gippsland because we had no money. Um, But it's actually been very fortuitous because the property has high ground and river flat. It's bounded by the the Great Wallagra River and it also has saline swamps. So the amount of food that we can grow here is pretty incredible. We can grow 
salt-tolerant plants, freshwater plants, but also uh, plants that like dry country. So even though it's only 148, it combines a um, huge range of uh, geographic features. And we're growing about five grasses and uh, uh, the same number of tubers and lilies. And look, we're, we're really excited about the prospects of this, this industry. Uh, there's no doubt that these foods are going to be really popular. They're also going to be very good for the environment. They'll sequester carbon. People won't have to plough their lands. They won't have to spread artificial fertiliser. They won't have to use any more water than the sky can provide. So they're going to be a boon for Australia. They're going to be a boon for our economy. But the big trick for Australia as always over the last two, 30 years, is making sure that Aboriginal people benefit from this knowledge. And that's been hard for Australia. And here's an opportunity, I think, for Australians to come together to be more considerate of their land and more considerate of the people who have always been here. Yeah, absolutely. And the case you put forward is so compelling in terms of just how economically viable these old ways of doing things are. Mm. Um, you talk about the fact that the way we think about forests is also very different and trees and tree placement and the spaces between trees, the understory and the undergrowth and the fact that you actually want to start farming or have started farming in these forest areas. And that might sound counterintuitive to someone who's not familiar with it. So I wonder, could you share with us what these forests used to look like and why you are looking to go back to that stage and, and how you're trying to reinstitute that knowledge that First Nations peoples have? The old Aboriginal forest was a lot safer. People lived a much safer life in pre-colonial times because, um, as rule of thumb, there were about 10 or 12 massive trees to the acre. Just before the big fires, 2019-2020, I walked through some forestry coups on the, the boundary of New South Wales and Victoria, and on average I was counting 330 small trees. All of those trees had their crowns touching. So any ignition in that forest was going to be explosive. And that's exactly what happened. Parts of the forest that I re returned to look at post-fire were gone. They weren't even dead sticks, they were gone. That's because the fire was so hot. I've never seen a fire like it. We knew it was coming and we knew what to expect, but it, you still, it still shocks you to see the devastation. And it's not necessary. It's because these commercial forests that we, where we're looking to harvest every tree in the forest so that all the trees are the same age, they're all small, they all, their crowns touch each other. It's just an explosive force waiting to happen. The old Aboriginal forests had massive trees and space underneath them, and Aboriginal people routinely burnt that space. So it made it very safe, but it also made it incredibly productive. 
we've been burning our tubers and lilies and our grasses, and if we don't, they don't prosper. These plants are Australian. Uh, they're used to interaction with humans, and that interaction often use fire. Uh, the continual harvest was part of their, their development, but also the use of fire. So we see that natural response every time. We can harvest lilies, and we don't take the whole plant out of the ground. We take some of the tubers. We then press the plant back in the ground. When you come back the next morning, it is hard to recognise the plant that you harvested because they recover so quickly. These plants are used to it. They're Australian plants. And I remember reading The Biggest Estate on Earth and just nodding my head when I read about that myth that the Australian colonial artists were pining for England and trying to recreate England. They weren't trying to recreate England. They were trying to paint what was in front of their eyes, a widely spaced park-like forest. That's what Bill described and that is what we want to return to, a safer, more beautiful place. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that having those plants in the ground, they do seem to also have a really unique effect in terms of aerating the soil. And you say that it, it really does change the soil quality as well. Yeah, the interaction between these plants and the mycorrhizal fungi and the, the, the trees themselves is very complicated. And I'm reading a, a book about fungi at the moment. Its name has just eluded me, but it's a, a fantastic book. I wish a lot more farmers would read it, as well as Charlie Massey's book, uh, The Cry of the Reed Warbler. Um, this is a, a really complex situation. We don't, we don't want to reduce farming to the plough and the superphosphate bag. We need it to be complex. Farmers need to be earth scientists. Uh, they don't necessarily need to go to university, but they have to love their ground and respect their ground. And many, many farmers do. Uh, I wish foresters were the same. Uh, we have to care for Mother Earth. We have to love her. We have to think every day, what can we do to look after her? And if we, do, if we do those things, if we stop and think, we won't be doing what they're doing in East Gippsland, which is clear felling forests so intensely that the entire topsoil runs off with every rain, and we've had plenty of that. It all ends up in the river, and eventually it ends up out at sea. These rivers here, the Maramingo, the Jinor, the Wallagra, you used to be able to navigate them for dozens of miles upstream. You can't do that anymore because they're silted up. This is an abuse of our geography. And if we call ourselves Australians and we love Australia, it's no use just loving the hills, hoist and the stump jump plough. We've got to love the land. Mm, absolutely. And I was really taken by what you wrote when you were talking about larger and older trees and how we need to love them and accept them and want to keep them on country. And you talk about the killer trees that were painted with a K on almost every big tree on the roadside around the 2019-2020 summer bushfires 
when they had abated, the contractors and forest managers were going around marking these trees, basically saying that they needed to be all removed and destroyed because they were a danger to humans. But in fact, you were arguing that although we need fewer trees, we need larger trees per acre. And I wondered if you could expand on that element and our really kind of odd relationship with older trees, because as we know, old growth trees do provide such vital habitat to animals, for example, as well. Yes, the old tree has a different character to the young tree. It nurtures more life because of those uh, those holes, the bigger limbs, the cavities in the branch junctions, all of those things are nurseries of life. And we need those old trees. And I think about it a lot because I've just finished building another couple of rooms under my house and I used timber. Some of the timber was new. Most of it was denailed timber from the original building. But I still did use some treated pine. So I can't see pie in the sky about the forest. We have to find a way of getting our trees. And as it was pointed out to me the other day, what we're doing on the farm is totally illegal because we are thinning a forest. We're not, we're not supposed to be touching that forest. But we want to have this conversation with the foresters, with national parks, with DELP, with all the authorities. We want to have this conversation about how we might treat the forest in the future. And because we're seeing the trees, that is currently illegal. But what I think it leads to is that while we're seeing those forests, we're going to have 30, 40 years of timber supply. Now, that gives us time to think about how we get the timber we need to use. And I'm arguing, just like with plastics, if we price plastic at its real cost, that it's environmental cost as well as its physical cost. And if we price timber at its real cost, that is its environmental cost as well, it will become economical to reuse old timber. I'm sickened by the number of building sites that go past where they're burning the odd length of treated pine that they've sawn off and they're burning. But worse still, they're burning all the old growth timber that's come out of these seedlings of these old houses they're renovating. It's tragic. And we only need to adjust the economy by a couple of percentage points to increase the price of new timber. And suddenly, the old timber is valuable and recyclable. No one likes pulling nails out of timber. No one likes picking up a a piece of timber that they have to look at twice to make sure that where they cut their notches for the joins um, hasn't already had a notch cut in it. You know, it's a bit of a fiddle, but we have to make it worthwhile because that timber must not be wasted. And so with the process that we're using, as I said, it's currently illegal. We think Australia will have 30, 40 years supply of new milled timber available to them as these thinned trees are utilised, not for wood pulp, not to make hamburger wrappers, but to make timber, really good timber. Because these thin trees in our forests, they're dead straight. And so for that 30 or 40 years, we're going to have this terrific resource to use. Please don't let us send it to Japan 
for wood chips. Please let us use it as construction material and use it again and use it again and use it again. Well, as we know, we are in a construction materials shortage, so being sustainable makes total sense and um, you make some really excellent points, Bruce. You do say uh, when you're reflecting on your methods in one of the chapters, you say we will need to cool burn beneath the trees to inhibit scrub when we try to replicate the old system of growing crops under the canopy of a more open forest. And I felt that was um, a really great way of explaining, you know, what you're doing for people who, you know, may not quite understand how it all kind of interacts. But when you're talking about crops and and the different types of native Australian plants that you in particular are growing at the moment, there's some really wonderful and fascinating ones to read of. And I know I'd already heard of some of them through Sailor's Grave with the Dark Emu Dark Lager. I spoke with Chris Moore, who was saying that you were supplying him with some Indigenous grass seeds. So I wonder, could you talk about some of the grasses and uh, some of the plants that you're growing at the moment that you're particularly excited by? Yeah, look, that burning is very important, that, just to start with that first. Yeah. Um, burning beneath the trees. Take a drive through East Gippsland at the moment, through the burnt areas, and have a look at the regrowth of tobacco bush, uh, small wattles. It is impenetrable. You can't walk through it. So what happens when that dries off, which it will, as soon as we have dry, warm weather, it'll become a time bomb. So mm. we have to burn Aboriginal people would have been back into that forest within weeks uh, to suppress some of that undergrowth because it's so dangerous. Uh, And the people working on the farm, we haven't had a dry break yet, but as soon as we get one, we'll be burning because we need to supply Sailor's Grave uh, with grain, but we also need to supply the bakers. We've got bakers on this as long as your arm waiting for us to supply them with seed and flour. And some of those grasses, like the kangaroo grass, Mamaja Nalak, the dancing grass, we've got a, a red anther wallaby grass now, which we call Badala Nalak. They're yeah, so terrific grasses, spear grass, a completely underrated, underrated pasture grass. We're getting terrific results with that. So those grasses are perennial. Their root masses are massive. Entangled Life was the name of that book I was thinking about before. Oh, yes. Those root masses of, say, kangaroo grass, spear grass, red anther and microlina, they're huge in comparison to what is above the soil. And so they're holding soil together. They're helping to build soil. They're interacting with the mycorrhizal fungi. They're supporting an enormous amount of wildlife and it's so good for the environment, but so are the lilies. The, the tubers themselves are having this interaction uh, with other trees, with other plants, with other fungi, and they're so important for the Australian soil. And there are going to be fortunes made out of returning to some of these plants. You know, they're going to be incredibly groovy, you know, for a long time, and, you know, coffee shops in Peran and Port Melbourne will do very well out of saying that they're using those foods. But as I said before, the trick is Australia to make sure that Aboriginal people benefit from this knowledge, this knowledge that has been built over 120,000 years. And if you, you know, like some 
in the archaeological industry don't like the, the number 120,000 years, I'll speak to Jimmy Butler, one of Australia's preeminent archaeologists. Come out to Mythica country and have a look at the work that's been done there. Go down to Point Richie and Warrnambool. The evidence is all around us. You know, it may not have made a, a textbook yet, uh, but it's there. And Aboriginal people over all that period of time have been making sure that this cycle has been protected and perpetuated over massive periods of time. And if we chuck away that amount of knowledge, we're really defying our own intelligence. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, that is the crux of it, that we need to make sure that Aboriginal people do financially benefit in every kind of way and socially as well. I know you have to head off, Bruce, but I just wanted to mention something I really loved reading about, and that's that you researched the world's first breads here in Melbourne at the Melbourne Museum. And I know, you know, the particular moment you write brought you to tears. And I know historians have had those kind of archival moments. It did bring back to me the idea that these grasses, I mean, they are essentially gluten-free as well, I believe. So the idea that it could open up a whole other market for people who are gluten intolerant and celiacs and health conscious mm. people and culturally interested people and people who just love the flavour as well. So you know, it's really exciting to hear your discoveries about the Aboriginal peoples who made our first breads. Yeah, um, a lot of those foods um, have incredibly complex reactions with our gut uh, mm. that we're discovering now through culinary science. But there's a, a few proteins in kangaroo grass flour, for instance, which are incredibly useful for diabetics. But the background news there is that if people were eating these things, perhaps they wouldn't become diabetic. Mm. And, you know, this information about our health and the extraordinary health of Aboriginal people at contact, you know, the fact that our people had no dental disease, for instance, was a factor of diet. The fact that people were tall and slim was a factor of diet as well as genetics. So there's so much positivity in this discussion and it, it's only going to be the curmudgeons who can see a negative most other Australians are going to embrace it you know the, the curmudgeons are going to say oh you know he's exaggerated the intelligence of Aboriginal people he's exaggerated uh, the benefits of these foods well this information is going to come out in a swarm over the next decade and I'd love Australia to be ready for it, ready to accept it and ready to make sure that Aboriginal people benefit from it. Because by reaching out to take the new flowers, the new tubers, you're also reaching out to Aboriginal people, I hope, and I hope Aboriginal people would extend their arm to make sure that this provides a better conversation between black and white. Yeah, yeah. It's a really exciting time, I can tell. And there's so much more in this book, certainly in your chapters, Bruce, that goes into this. So I hope people can make sure that they check out the book as a whole, but also visit these chapters that we've just been discussing. Thank you so much for your time. I'll let you go. And I really appreciate your time today, Bruce, and I'll uh, head across to Bill. Uh, good on you. Thanks very much, Amy. And uh, Bill, I'm sorry to shoot through like a Bondi tram, but um, <laughs> uh, there's important community work to be done today so I'll get on yeah, with that. 
Not a problem. Glad you got stuff to do, mate. Hang in there. Thank you. Yeah. See you, Bruce. We were chatting with Bruce Pascoe, writer and farmer, who was chatting with us about parts of the book that he has co-written with Bill Gamage, who is also on the line with me now. The book is called Country, Future Fire, Future Farming. And uh, Bill is a historian, Bill Gamage. He is based at the Humanities Research Centre at the Australian National University. And you may be familiar with some of his books, which include The Broken Years, Australian Soldiers in the Great War, as well as The Biggest Estate on Earth, How Aborigines Made Australia. And that book is very relevant to this one. As, Bill, you point out, actually, in the introduction, where you say that you're drawing a lot on the research that you did in that book and therefore people can go back to the biggest estate on earth if they want to delve into more of the points that you bring up in this book because you've got it all there, uh, all the references, all the beautiful illustrations as well. So, yes, I should just wanted to point that out to anyone that they should absolutely check that book out as well. But, Bill, we were just talking off air and I was saying that I really... When I was reading this book, I found it so hard to narrow down what was most important because I found myself underlining pretty much everything. And it just really got me excited and opened my eyes to the possibilities of what Australia could be like again and return to because of all the work that you and Bruce have done. So I wanted to, I guess, talk about that element and the kind of wonder that this work brings to people who aren't familiar with what Australia was like, as in the title of your other book, The Biggest Estate on Earth. Yeah, well, you're not alone in being surprised, uh, Amy. Um, a lot of readers got in touch with me and, and said, you know, this is amazing, it's changed my life, etc., etc. And it certainly has for me too. I mean, my research was a slow process of discovery. It, it, it started uh, by contrasting what uh, certain pieces of land were like when I could see them with descriptions from early uh, settlers uh, or what we call explorers. Most commonly, I'd find that a place was covered in trees, whereas then it was uh, grass, quite often very rich grass, but grass. And I'd say, well, if it's trees now, why wasn't it trees then? You know, trees grow and and so the soil couldn't explain it, salt couldn't explain it. I thought of fire fairly early on, but most uh, trees, especially eucalypts, which is a, a focus of mine, eucalypts and acacias, will recover in different ways after fire. So uh, the forest remains, you know, unless it's something like Black Summer, which, you know, removed the sticks as well. So it couldn't have been that. And I realised that it was... Aboriginal fire. Now, I knew Aborigines burnt the country. Uh, settlers constantly complaining about Aboriginal people burning the country. But it made me see that they were doing it much more carefully and deliberately and selectively than uh, the ordinary text would suggest to you. And so that made me search. And that got me on a process of discovery, not only about fire, but about the interaction with plants, as Bruce was talking to you, about water and also about Aboriginal social organisation to extent to explain why their management of the land was so strictly enforced by their philosophies. 
Yeah. And as we know, in Dark Emu, Bruce's other book, he was talking about how Aboriginal people were engaging in farming practices and agriculture. Uh, And in your book, I know that it supports that as well. And you say that, you know, they were very strategic in particular in the way that they planned and worked hard to make plants and animals abundant, convenient and predictable. You say they depended not on chance but on policy. And you also say in 1788 the people of this land were fire farmers. So I wonder, could you use those two quotes as a springing point to explain what you mean there about their strategy, particularly around fire, but how they then bring in animals and plants? Okay, I'll go back a bit if I may. Yeah. I think the Aboriginal philosophy and therefore the religion has an ecological base. The basic premise is if something exists, it's entitled to live. And so it's the duty of all species, including humans, to make sure that 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 right to existence is provided for. That means there has to be a place for every species every single species. I mean, I have a friend in Central Australia or I had a friend in Central Australia whose dreaming was maggots because maggots are entitled to live. So what people are doing when they're managing the country is making sure there's a place, basically making sure there's a place for every kind of creature. Now, of course, some creatures can coexist, but others need uh, different kinds of Habitat, spin effects is very different from rainforest, to take an obvious example. So what people are doing with fire, and also no fire, burning and not burning, is distributing vegetation so that each kind of vegetation has a, a place and also that that vegetation will provide a habitat and food and shelter for every species kangaroos on grass, koalas on gum trees, etc., etc., And that, that is a very complex interaction which produced the uh, mosaic of different kinds of vegetation that uh, European arrivals described in 1788. And my book is trying to delineate those different kinds of habitats, myriad kinds of habitats, but also the philosophy that linked them together. And that's why I call it the greatest estate. So you've got a whole lot of small discoveries, which is your underlying page by page, organised and directed by a, a universal philosophy about the entitlement of all creatures to exist. Yes, and you do go into, you know, a lot of the detail around the different plants, um, you know, eucalypts, kangaroo grass. But I was really struck by this phrase that you used, the plant fire alliance. And that really resonated. It just seemed to kind of encapsulate everything you were saying about plants and the fact that fire needs plants for fuel, plants need fire or no fire to thrive but their alliance needs a spark. And I just wonder, could you share with us more about that plant-fire alliance, the idea, and what you were seeking to explain to us in terms of that really intricate mosaic? Yes, that's well picked up, Amy. It's an essential relationship in Australia and also in other uh, southern hemisphere places too, I think. Uh, That is that the plants, many plants 
need fire to regenerate. Bruce was talking very well about the uh, different uh, tubers and lilies that he has on his place and how much they flourish after fire, which means you can then harvest them more often and more selectively. Um, they actually respond. If, if you don't burn kangaroo grass, it becomes moribund, it becomes senile, if you like, which is one reason, by the way, why in uh, city parks and so on, I think they face a problem with, uh, with native grasses. They have to burn them. But that burning is something the plants expect and they regenerate. What you do is with most grasses, you put a, a cool burn through. That is a fire you could step over basically or perhaps a, a bit bigger than that in the north where the grass grows so freely. And what you see there is the cool fire moving through the grass, creating a mosaic of burnt and un burnt patches. It's almost as though the fire is caressing the grass into life, saying, you know, you've this part of your cycle, it's time for another one, we're going to regenerate. And the two of them cooperate together to produce uh, fertile grasses, rich food supply, and so on. So that Plant-Fire Alliance is a way of thinking about fire in particular for uh, whitefellas to see what's basic to the Australian uh, vegetation. Yeah, and you do have, as you know, some really great notes. There's a section called 1788 Fire Notes with some great points that people can go through if they want to understand the conditions, the approaches that were taken in 1788 and what one might do today to try and replicate that. But obviously it does require deep knowledge of country and of the kind of particular ecology that you're actually living in and working on. It's interesting to me that you are providing this knowledge and it's great that you are as well because it's something that no doubt will keep coming up in future when we see more and more increasing bushfires that are catastrophic, unfortunately, because of climate change and what we've done to the planet. But this is one way, it's quite clear and, you know, you pointed out in the book, this is one way that we can actually minimise the harm that's done overall from these catastrophic bushfires that are likely to happen again after we have this, you know, La Nina, we might end up having a dry season. So I wonder, could you reflect on the element of pragmatism that is part of this book in terms of providing solutions to the climate crisis and solutions to the overgrowth of forests that we romanticise, you know, all this bush and scrubland, but actually, as you point out and as Bruce has pointed out, it wasn't the case that that wasn't what it was like in the past. Why it's so uh, more pragmatic is because when I wrote The Biggest Estate, which is published in 2011, I was talking about coming fires. I, I predicted a fire like Black Summer. I mightn't have got the details, but I said there are big fires coming and we need to do things such as reduce fuel to prevent that happening. Almost a decade later, what happened? Those fires came. We had done nothing to prevent them. People were killed. Rows of houses were destroyed. Acres and acres of property, native species endangered. It was a catastrophe. And I, if anything, I felt ashamed. I should have been much more aggressive in the biggest estate. Well, I wasn't going to make the same mistake twice. 
in country, you, I contrast what people did in 1788 with what we do now and showed the big gap and I showed how our practices created uh, Black Summer and will create future Black Summers. And so the table you're talking about is ways to deal with our neglect, as it were, to make sure that we spend more effort on preventing and less on fighting because we don't succeed in the fighting. It's quite clear that uh, fighting fires is a losing proposition. We have to prevent them. And so that table talks about it. Let me add that after Black Summer, we had a great opportunity, which we're going to miss. If you look at uh, Black Summer, uh, where it was burnt, it was a catastrophe without question. But it was also, if you like, a blank sheet where we could start again. As the vegetation recovered, we could selectively burn it. We could burn parts of it, patches of it, much like the clearings in the, the forest of 1788. We could let other parts uh, grow a bit more or less often put a fire through them to get rid of the tobacco bush and the other things that Bruce was talking about. And gradually keeping doing that, you would create a mixed forest. There'd be plains and mosaics of grass in the middle of forests, some with scrub, some without scrub, some with big open trees, some with denser trees, according to the various habitats that various plants and animals and insects and birds need. That would be the easiest way to start it. We've missed that chance, I think. You know, we mm. just sit back and weep at the tragedy. We have to be more understanding of what Aboriginal people would do and more aggressive in uh, following their practice in looking after the country. And one component as well that I just wanted to add in, uh, because I, I also found it very interesting, and it reminds me of these times where we have big locust plagues and, you know, some types of an ecology or an ecosystem might overgrow or become overabundant. And you and Bruce point out in this book, Country, that Aboriginal people would suppress and balance the ecosystem and to balance country. And so animals were culled if their numbers swelled off their totem places, you say, and they thinned or cleared trees for grass. Um, they removed scrub. But you also point out really interestingly that fire suppressed insects and quotes some interesting primary sources around Europeans observing this practice that, you know, the insect populations would go down. And, and it seems like there's this really fascinating and intricate balance, not only of that keeping everything in a certain number so it's in harmony, but also, as you point out, their systemic management, the distribution as well of where species go. So I wondered, could you just talk about a little bit about that around not only the volume of a species, you know, how many there are, but also where they are? Yeah, well, I think it's generally accepted now that... Uh a fire will reduce uh, grasshoppers by destroying the, the, their eggs and, and so on uh, and the young uh, grasshoppers. The problem is to burn at the right time, which doesn't always suit pastoralists. And uh, for other insects, uh, there's a remarkable man, uh, Alfred Howard, over a century ago, 1890s now, uh, who wrote an article called The Eucalypts of Gippsland. And he correlated 
the dieback in some uh, species with the increase of insect uh, predators on those species of, of eucalypts, of trees, forests, whole forests that were killed when the insects got out of control. And clearly that wasn't happening uh, under Aboriginal management, otherwise the trees wouldn't have been there at all. And so th he gives a very good example of how fire can manage uh, eucalypts. And that's one of the consequences of imbalance. But as, as you say, the important thing for Aboriginal people was to ensure that there, there was that balance because a balance meant, as I said when I first began talking, every species, every creature had a place and that place they were secure in. And if one species was intruding onto another, for example, if kangaroos were eating too much grass and not in their conservation reserves but somewhere else, then that meant there were too many kangaroos and they'd be culled or hunted more often or whatever the case may be. And so you can go on with um, if scrub is over, uh, growing over grass or rainforest is encroaching onto grass, then it'd be burnt back and, and so on and so on. Balance was important. I just wanted to finish on this question to you. Capitalism it definitely has negative components and a lot of it is the fact that we've been so unsustainable in the way that we've lived on this planet and colonisation and its effects on country and in Australia has obviously had detrimental effects as this book outlines. But we also have choices within a capitalist system and that's another thing that you both point out in the conclusion is we all have agency and choices. So I wondered, when we're reflecting on the message of this book, what were you hoping that the reader would take away, especially given what you've said around the urgencies for these different issues, the most obvious one being climate change? Well, several messages, uh, I think. Uh, one of the uh, first is that, we, should, as Bruce said, we should recognise that this is intellectual property by Aboriginal people and we should pay for it, pay for it uh, either directly or more, uh, in my preference, uh, by increased training opportunity, giving Aboriginal people jobs, including senior executive positions in managing land uh, so that they have a respected status and their knowledge can be applied. But another thing is that we should be able to create the flexibility in our management so that where we can begin now, which is in parks and reserves and Aboriginal land, we can start to try and head back towards 1788 and uh, using fire to do that. Plus, from another direction, if you like, do what Bruce is doing and as a model and show how the actual farming products that we make can be better related to Australian soil. So we'd have fire teaching some things, uh, plants and, and their uses teaching other things to uh, create a more uh, viable, uh, I'd say more sustainable, more profitable land use, which is what uh, you mentioned capitalism, but capitalism and socialism both aim for that kind of thing. I, I really do implore people to read the book, and I rarely say that, but they really should. 
it's so, so excellent in all the ways we've outlined today and many other areas as well. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you, Bill, and Bruce as well earlier. And uh, I'm so grateful to you both for combining your knowledge and your deep passion for this, as well as your deep respect for Aboriginal country, culture and knowledge. Uh, It really does shine through in this book. So thank you so much for sharing a little bit of it with us today. Thanks, Amy. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And mine. I've just been speaking with Bill Gamage there. Thank you so much, Bill. And also with Bruce Pascoe, who have both co-authored this book, Country, Future Fire, Future Farming. And uh, as I said, Bruce is a writer and a farmer. He's a Ewan and Bonarong man. And uh, Bill is based up in Canberra at ANU and is a historian. Uh, Both are the author of many brilliant books that I hope you do check out, including Uh, The Biggest Estate on Earth as well by Bill and Dark Emu by Bruce. And you can also taste uh, that lovely Dark Emu Dark Lager, which Sailor's Grave make with Bruce's brilliant grass seeds. So, um, yeah, so many great ways that you can interact and start to understand the potential for what uh, Bruce was saying. If you'd like to follow up on the two books that Bruce Pascoe mentioned in our conversation, Check out Call of the Reed Warbler, A New Agriculture, A New Earth by Charles Massey, as well as Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds and Shape Our Futures by Merlin Sheldrake. I've spoken with both Charlie and Merlin about their respective books, and you can find these interviews on the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.